Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Senator Bob Graham and attorney Chris Hand about their new book, America, the Owner's Manual, You Can Fight City Hall and Win. She not only saved these structures, effectively used government, and did so almost as a, as a one-person band in many cases, but also left this legacy in which historic preservation continues to be emphasized and protected in Miami-Dade County. We'll discuss a case of libel from 1860 involving a slave. This is part of a federal libel case that was actually heard in Admiralty Court, meaning it dealt with maritime law. And Civil War monuments in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. My daddy told me about the old glory days. But I made up my mind against daddy's ways. I followed King to Atlanta and got the slaves all free. And the ladies came out from behind the fans of gentry. America, America Now you've broken free America, America Was your destiny Bob Graham is one of Florida's most popular politicians. He served 12 years in the Florida legislature before becoming governor in 1978. He left office with an 83% approval rating and beginning in 1986 served three consecutive terms in the U.S. Senate. He created the Bob Graham Center for Public Service at the University of Florida. Attorney Chris Hand has served as speechwriter and press secretary for Senator Graham and was chief of staff for the city of Jacksonville under Mayor Alvin Brown. Together, Senator Graham and Chris Hand have written a book demonstrating how citizens can have a positive impact on government. Senator Graham. The book, America, the Owner's Manual, You Can Fight City Hall and Win, uh, is a challenge to citizens to see democracy as being more than voting. Voting may be the single most important thing you do because that selects the people who will use their constitutional responsibilities uh, to advance the interest of the nation. But it's not the end of your citizenship responsibilities. We all have the ability uh, to shape our community and our state and our nation by our own action. Uh, and I think particularly at this point in American history, it's especially critical that uh, people don't go into a defensive crouch uh, and say, I don't like what's happening, I'm gonna check out. This is the time to check in uh, with active citizenship. 
uh, our, the purpose of our book is to first motivate people that that is possible. And so we have many stories about citizens who saw a problem or a missed opportunity uh, and they took advantage of it. And uh, many of those stories come right out of Florida. Recent elections have demonstrated people's desire for change, and this book provides practical advice for people who want to make change happen. Chris Hand. Well, that's exactly right. And frankly, you talk about sort of recent elections. The number one question Senator Graham and I have received since November the 8th is the same question that Robert Redford asked his campaign manager at the end of the candidate. What do we do now? Because, and really this is a bipartisan question we receive. For those who are pleased with the election results, uh, the question has been, what do we do now to hold elected officials accountable to the change they've promised to bring? And to those who were disappointed by the election results, it's, did I do enough? Are there other ways that I can get involved? And so this book is hopefully one of the answers to that question. Uh, America, the Owner's Manual, You Can Fight City Hall and Win, helps to provide a step-by-step -step guide to citizens who want to build and flex their citizenship muscles and make government respond on a challenge or a problem they've identified in their community. But it doesn't just provide the 10 steps. We can give that advice. We wanted them to hear from other people as well. That's why there are 35 so-called tips from the pros in the book, specific essays of advice from uh, civic professionals around the country, pollsters, political consultants, financial experts, mayors, former members of Congress, to help them put that advice in some context. And even more importantly, the examples of other citizens who have uh, built and flexed their citizenship muscles to make government respond. So each, both the overall book and each chapter leads with the example of a citizen or a group of citizens uh, who have used the skills of effective citizenship to make government listen to them and take seriously their concerns. In their book, Graham and Hand provide specific examples of ways that people have led successful efforts to influence the government and create change. One case study looks at how Art Deco structures in Miami Beach were saved from demolition. Senator Graham. It wasn't that long ago that there was a strong proposal uh, to demolish uh, what is now South Beach. Uh, the economic and political leaders of the uh, city felt that uh, Disney had built a wall across Florida and that tourists wouldn't come south uh, to their traditional places such as Miami Beach unless they had similar tourist attractions uh, to Disney. And so the idea was to uh, take down much of the old architecture, the Art Deco sections, and build a a theme park. Uh, there was one lady named Barbara Capitman uh, who said that's a very bad idea and that in fact the future of Miami Beach uh, is to restore uh, this Art Deco building, remind uh, people of positive experiences in their own personal uh, and family life that were associated uh, with uh, South Beach. And her persistence uh, and her skill uh, in manipulating a very complex uh, bureaucratic process to get South Beach designated as a national historic district were the keys to saving South Beach and really saving Miami Beach as a international destination.
That was pioneered by, a, by an incredible woman, a Barbara Capitman, uh, a recently widowed uh, historic preservationist who was concerned about efforts to raise the historic Art Deco structures. And she did something quite remarkable. In addition to building a coalition, she thought very carefully about which level of government can really help me in this situation. And she thought beyond just sort of, well, this is a local or city government matter. She thought, is there another level of government uh, that could play a role? When she kind of hatched upon the idea that the, the, the South Beach could be added to the Federal Register of Historic Places, that became her goal, that she worked at multiple levels of government uh, until she was successful. Uh, and I think many people now very glad that she did because she preserved something that truly is a historic treasure in Florida, but also left an organization, the Miami Design Preservation League, that continues to work on these issues in Miami Beach. In fact, one issue they're very focused on right now is what is the impact of potential climate change on historic structures in Miami Beach and on the city in general? So she not only saved these structures, effectively used government, and did so almost as a, as a one-person band in many cases, but also left this legacy in which historic preservation continues to be emphasized and protected in Miami-Dade County. Another example of effective citizenship from the book involves people from the Florida Keys fighting a dramatic increase in insurance rates. Chris Hand. Anyone who lived here in Florida in 2004 and 2005 remembers the just sort of uh, one hurricane after another that we experienced in this state uh, that affected almost every part of the state. But strangely enough, especially given their location, the one part of the state that was not affected by those storms was the Florida Keys. Uh, while many other parts of Florida were hit by hurricanes, the Keys left that two-year hurricane cycle relatively unscathed. So you can imagine the surprise of many Keys homeowners when they opened their property insurance bills and saw that their rates had skyrocketed largely on the fact that these hurricanes had come to Florida. Well, since they hadn't come to the Florida Keys, they were uh, surprised about, their, uh, about the fact that their bills had skyrocketed. So they used one of the most important skills of effective citizenship. They did their homework. They consulted with experts. Uh, they did research. Uh, and they learned that these rate increases really weren't based on anything justifiable. Having done this excellent homework and turned themselves into credible citizen advocates, they took their case to, uh, to Tallahassee and were successful in having these insurance uh, increases rolled back. So we use that story as an example of why it is so important to do your homework, know your facts, be a credible citizen advocate, and if you are that, you have a much greater chance of success in making government respond. To illustrate how a coalition of seemingly unlikely partners can bring about positive social change, Graham and Hand look at a coalition between the LGBT and business communities in Tampa Bay. Yes, and we talk a lot about coalitions in the book because this is such an important aspect uh, of citizen engagement. The old expression is the strength of the wolf is in the pack. Uh, and the more different organizations, people you can bring in to help champion your cause, uh, the greater an opportunity you're going to have to be successful. The example you're referring to, Ben, it occurred in Hillsborough County, where uh, the Hillsborough County Commission uh, in the mid-1990s uh, decided to remove sexual orientation and gender identity as uh, matters that should be protected under that county's human rights ordinance. This was obviously a matter of great concern to the Tampa Bay LGBT community, and they you know, immediately began work to try and reverse that decision. 
but they realized that they wanted to sort of have as big a net of supporters as possible when they were taking these concerns to try and get them reversed at the Hillsborough County Commission. So they joined forces with the Tampa Bay business community, which was very concerned about the message of intolerance and lack of inclusion that not having sexual orientation and gender identity in that human rights ordinance would send to businesses who might be looking to relocate to Tampa Bay. Uh, so as a result, as a result of this coalition, the Hillsborough County Commission not only reversed itself and included sexual orientation and gender identity uh, in their human rights ordinance, but also added one of the state's first domestic partnership registries and took other actions to show that Hillsborough County wanted to be seen as tolerant and inclusive. So it was the power of that coalition. In fact, the title of that story, which is actually written by Nadine Smith, who's the executive director of Equality Florida, is called Equality Means Business. And that really captures well what happened there. A coalition of people who come at this from slightly different perspectives, but have the same goal in mind, can be very powerful in helping citizens achieve the goals they want with government. I think there are three things that are necessary for citizens to, to be effective in the use of their rights and responsibilities. Uh, one, they've got to be passionate. Barbara Caputman was passionate about saving those Art Deco buildings on South Beach. Two, you've got to be skilled. Uh, citizenship isn't intuitive. You're not born with an uh, automatic uh, awareness of what it takes to be an effective citizen. You, it is a skill like playing a sport or a musical instrument. And then third, you have to be persistent. Uh, Barbara, uh, it took her the better part of five years. In fact, uh, she died before the full realization of what she had uh, set out to accomplish uh, was re reality. Uh, so passion, skills, persistence, I think are the three uh, keys and America, the owner's manual, tries to take those and expand on what specifically you can do in order to, uh, uh, to master especially the skills of effective citizenship. We spoke with Senator Bob Graham and attorney Chris Hand about their book, America, the Owner's Manual, You Can Fight City Hall and Win. America, America, are you losing your mind? America, America. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. You can also become a member of the Florida Historical Society and receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. 
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, this week we'll be talking about a case of libel from 1860. What's the background of this case? Well, this case, as you said, was heard in 1860, and this is part of a federal libel case that was actually heard in admiralty court, meaning it dealt with maritime law. Now, this case was heard before uh, McQueen McIntosh, who was the uh, judge in charge of the United States District Court for the Northern District of Florida. Now, the U.S. presence or the federal court presence in Florida dates back to the territorial period. As part of the legislation that created the Florida Territory, Florida had to have some kind of federal court presence in order to uh, prosecute federal crimes within the territory. There was a single district up until 1847 because of Florida's growing population and the growing number of people moving into the southern part of the state. They broke this division into a northern and southern division in 1847. So the Northern Division was created in 1847, and that's where this particular case was heard. Now, actually, in the mid-20th century, the divisions were broken up even further. So today we have uh, three divisions, uh, Northern, the uh, Middle Florida Division, and the South Florida Division, because, again, in response to the uh, growing population in the state. So this particular case, as I said, was uh, heard in 1860, but the actual crime itself, or the libel claim, uh, occurred back in 1857. Now, all of this occurred in and around Jacksonville. Jacksonville was a major terminal for steamboat lines, steamboats that were plying up the St. John's River at, at that time as far south as Palatka, and they were moving goods from as far north as South Carolina, Virginia, and actually New York. Uh, and there were two steamboats that were actually uh, involved in this case, the Carolina and the Everglade. And the actual liable claim uh, was against a slave owner, a man named Henry Henderson, and he was bringing this claim against a Lewis Coxeter. Now, Coxeter was the master of both the Carolina and the Everglades, and actually owned the Everglades later on. And the claim is that Henderson owned a slave by the name of Alphonse, uh, also known as Fonz in many of the documents. Now, Alphonse was hired as a mariner on one of these boats, and Henderson was not on that boat. And he was essentially hired and able to work on a boat that was going, as I said, up and down the eastern seaboard as a merchant mariner, and he worked in various capacities. And there were agreements that were struck between the masters of these boats and the slave owner, Henderson. Uh, now, some of these were written, and apparently some of these were verbal. Uh, now, this is where the libel comes in, because it was a, a disagreement about uh, some of the written contracts and the compensation for the slave, Alphonse, which later came to a head in 1860 uh, over the course of this court case. Now, we're looking at original depositions from this case from the United States District Court. Yes, that's right. And, and I find these to be the most interesting because when we talk about court cases, generally we get kind of lost in a lot of the, the legal jargon, but we actually get to listen to witness testimonies. You get kind of an on-the-ground feel for how all of these people were involved in, in the case and how they were uh, really felt about the claims being brought against them uh, and those who were bringing the claims. And I'll read just a quick passage. Now, this is part of the response by Coxeter. So he's responding to the initial liable claim. Uh, now, again, Henderson is is claiming that Alphonse was hired, there was a written contract, but Cox there is saying, uh, unfortunately, that's not true. And I'll just read here, uh, and kind of we can get a feel for how Coxeter is looking at, at this agreement. He says here, quote, that it is publicly known that the said Alphonse is and was by the said Henry Hedgerson allowed to do as he pleased and to make his own contracts. That is, the said Alphonse is to be entirely free at the death of the said Henry Henderson and is so far free now that the said Henry Henderson has carried him to Canada and the free states 
and that the entire treatment of said Alphonse by the said Henry Henderson fully justified this respondent in treating Alphonse as one authorized to contract. So essentially, that means that Coxeter felt as though Alphonse was acting as a freed slave, as a free person of color, meaning he was able to negotiate and carry through his own contract. So that means that Alphonse could collect money on his own account rather than collecting money for the slave owner, which kind of complicates this case a little bit. Now, these are depositions from your archive. Do you have the complete records from this case? Unfortunately, no. So what we're looking at, again, is just a window into what's becoming a very complicated case. So remember, in uh, January of 1861, Florida decided to leave the Union, and we're talking about a federal court case. So what happens when the U.S. government is now uh, no longer present within the state government system? The Confederate states actually created a Confederate district of Florida. Some of these cases were carried over and some weren't. Uh, Many of these records, the federal records at least, are held with the National Archive in Washington, D.C., and for the southern districts, including Florida, they're actually housed in Atlanta. Uh, So we we don't actually know what happened with this case, but we can read through some of these witness testimonies and see how far it led up to the point uh, when Florida seceded from the Union. Now, I mentioned Judge uh, McIntosh. Now, he was a uh, Confederate sympathizer, and in 1861, he left the bench. He is actually the only judge who was uh, in charge of the um, northern district of Florida who resigned his position. Uh, Every other judge either retired or or died in office. So he has the the distinction of being the only one who who gave up his seat to join the Confederacy and and later died in the 1860s. So so unfortunately, we don't really know what happened with Alphonse. uh, But according to a lot of these uh, eyewitness testimonies, we had an African-American, an enslaved person who was collecting his own wages, uh, uh, spending those wages, and uh, was essentially living as a free person. But at some point, Henderson um, probably came short of money and decided to call upon uh, his ownership of that slave. And that's where we get the libel case coming up so late in in the 1850s. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. There are monuments commemorating the Civil War located throughout Florida. Sometimes these monuments cause controversy. Osmer Lewis, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has more. A lot of history that we talk about and that we commemorate through historic places, not all of it is is pleasant or feel-good things. A lot of it is uncomfortable history. Um, and just because history is uncomfortable, if you look at it or think about it or talk about it, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, that may be a good thing because it is helping you understand something that is perhaps 
you know, not the best part of us, but uh, is part of us nonetheless and is part that we need to overcome in the coming years. That was Dr. William B. Lees from the University of West Florida, who spoke with me about Florida's relationship with Confederate monuments. Here, Dr. Lees discusses the numerous Union and Confederate monuments and what they mean. The monuments of the Civil War vary, uh, vary quite a bit um, throughout the country. Uh, in, in former Union states, you find mainly uh, monuments commemorating the, the uh, Union regiments and Union cause. You know, the uh, Confederate monuments started out very early on just to be uh, very much like the Union monuments I talked about, just commemorated soldiers and their service and loss. But it became an attempt to vindicate Southern loss, and it was vindicating the Confederacy for what they did during the Civil War, but it also uh, was about vindicating the Southern soldier and the, the Southern man. After the war ended in 1865, the first monuments dedicated to Confederate soldiers were constructed as early as 1867. These monuments and other dedications have always been a topic of discussion, which has been amplified recently. When I look at the Civil War, it is about slavery, ultimately. Uh, you can say it's states' rights. People have said that, but it's, it's all about states' rights to own slaves. There has been, for a number of years, uh, pushback to the Confederate uh, symbols and the Confederate message that you see on uh, monuments. Um, there's been pushback to Confederate names being used on schools and city streets and things of that sort. Uh, this has been going on for some time. The uh, murders in Charleston with the white supremacists who had been seen with a Confederate flag caused that to accelerate. And a lot of pushback a lot of desire to change names of schools, to change names of city streets that were named after uh, Confederate generals, for example, and interest in either moving or just dismantling uh, Confederate monuments. Gainesville, Florida is a prominent place. New Orleans, uh, Louisiana also has. They have decided, both those places have decided to remove to other locations Confederate monuments that are in prominent uh, public places. I then asked Dr. Lees about more recent commemorations that focus on Union troops in Florida. There are, surprisingly, even though it was over 150 years ago, there, there have been monuments erected to the Civil War and Civil War soldiers and causes in Florida throughout that 150 years, and they're, they're still going on today. As far as monuments to commemorate Union soldiers and Civil War in general, there are a few that are happening. There were some efforts at the Lusty Battlefield to erect a monument honoring the Union soldiers there. There have been, uh, in Fort Myers, a monument erected to the United States Colored Troops that served in the Fort Myers area uh, that was erected a number of years ago. And there's also a new monument in uh, Key West honoring the Union soldiers down there. I'm Osmer Lewis, a student with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.